please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Song of Solomon or the Song of uh, Songs. It's fitting to consider a text like this as we anticipate meeting with our Lord Jesus tomorrow. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 6 to 11. I know we're diving straight into this text together. Don't know if you've had much time together as a congregation in it, but I trust the Lord will give us help as I will spend a little bit extra time today on some contextual matters. Song of Solomon, chapter 3 and verse 6. Let us hear God's word. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. Amen. May God bless this very rich text to us. Now I understand that you're in the midst of a communion season here. I praise God for that as there's much work being done to prepare us for the communion table. Now, in a communion season, there are typically three uh, themes that we consider before coming to the Lord's table that helps us to examine ourselves as the Apostle lays out in 1 Corinthians 11. There is humiliation by which we repent of our sins before the Lord God, finding the sin in our hearts as leaven, casting it before the Lord. Then there is a searching of marks of grace in our heart by which we may encourage ourselves that the Lord is at work in us, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And then the third theme that is often used is anticipation, by which we anticipate meeting with our Lord Jesus Christ. Having done a work in our hearts this time of preparation, we anticipate coming to the table because we're not there to meet a bare ritual. We are there to meet Christ. And so the theme this morning I want to handle with you is that theme of anticipation. The anticipation of meeting with our Lord Jesus Christ to help us to yearn to meet with him. And the reason I selected this theme here is because your minister, I know, has sent exercises for you this week by which you may come before the Lord to discover the leaven in your heart, the dross, the idolatry, to search for the sin that plagues you, the unbelief that clouds your sight of Jesus Christ. He's given you those exercises to help you discover in your heart the the attraction you have to sin and to the world rather than to the Lord of heaven. Well, I trust you've discovered these things and I trust you've mourned over these things as well. And I trust you also brought, because that's insufficient, isn't it? without bringing those things to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. And I trust 
you've done that work, at least begun it, in this time of preparation. Yet, in view of all that, this is what happens. We often then start to fear, and we want to sometimes draw back from the table, having discovered all that uncleanness. And you ask, is Christ willing to receive me? Is Christ willing to have me at his table when I am so often full of carnal doubts and unbelief and sin, which he calls whoredom against himself? I fall over and over again, even from the time that I've gone to the Lord for cleansing. And the leaven that I find every communion seems unending, and I feel like the apostle in Romans 7, wretched man or wretched woman that I am. And you ask, would Christ, who is so pure, who is so holy, who is so perfect, would he have anything to do with me at this time of intimate fellowship at his table? So we come to a text like this, which shows you Jesus is actually quite eager to have you, his bride, come to him. A text like this shows that not only does does he want you to come, he desires you, he delights in you, He adores, what a strange idea that is. If he didn't say it, we couldn't believe it. That he adores us and he yearns for us to come to him, to be at his right hand, even as we sang it in Psalm 45. So there are always two sites, there are more than two, but particularly in this theme of anticipation, there are two sites we must have as we anticipate coming to the table. The first and the primary one is the resplendent sight of our king and our bridegroom to, as our text says, behold King Jesus. To drink in his magnificence, to take in a sight of him which is so glorious that in itself will beautify us as in the beatific vision to come. But second, we're also to have a sight of ourselves. And not just through our eyes, but through his eyes. How does the Lord Jesus Christ see the one who has faith in him? We have to see that the king's heart is glad to see us and how the king himself is doing a work in us to transform us. We must see the beauty that Christ himself has given us. We must see ourselves through his eyes that he has given to us his own beauty. And then not only is he given to us a robe of righteousness that we had heard of in Revelation 19. But he is making us perfectly beautiful. Not only does he see us that way, he is making something of us, especially in times of heightened communion with him. Friends, such things will inflame our desire for Jesus and bring a great anticipation to meet him at his table. And our hearts will long for him, and our hearts will also long to be more sanctified as we see ourselves through his eyes. We want to be what he sees us as. And that drives us as well in our further sanctification. You know, so today we often think of, and we've heard this even in our texts, Jesus as king of the nations. We've heard of Jesus as king of the church. But today you really must see Jesus as king of your heart, predominantly. The king of your heart. And so that's our theme is the king's joy in receiving us, the king's joy in receiving us. And I'll consider that with you under three heads. I didn't supply these to your minister, so I apologize for that. But first is the bride, second is the king, 
and third is the crown. The bride, the king, and the crown. So first, the bride. Now, if you're new to the Song of Solomon, you may think this is a manual for earth, earthly marriages, um, for earthly love, but it is not. And I trust being under Pastor Edgar's ministry, you know something of that. But I'll reemphasize it for those of you who are new to the book. In its very first verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, it is called the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now that's a Hebrew superlative, as you might know. That's a one way that the Hebrew mind conceives of something that is the greatest of that category. So it's called the Song of Songs. It is the greatest song. We heard of Jesus' children as the King of Kings. What does that mean to the Hebrew mind? He is the greatest king, isn't he? So this is the Song of Songs. It is the greatest song, and everyone knows this. It's about love, isn't it? So if it's the Song of Songs, it is of the love of loves. It is of the greatest love. And I don't know if you know what that greatest love is. It's not the love you have for your wife or your husband if you're married. That's not the greatest love of all. It's not some historical love that you might find in some of the great poets of this world. Instead, the greatest love, children, is the love of Christ for his bride and the love of the bride for her Christ. It is the love of Christ for the church. And so, when this book becomes uh, to us about earthly love, which many interpreters today consider it, it is too low a view of this book. It really is. Uh, what we see here is King Jesus, the one that we love. And you really have to ask, right, as you come to this book, is there any love, could there be any love under heaven that could compare to what is in this book? And the answer is no. No. There's no way, <laughs> married brethren, that your marriage could ever in any sense reflect the love in this book. It would be a pale imitation at best. And also, this would be, and you know, of course, this is ministers, we often say this, this is a terrible book for marriage counseling. The husband is perfect and radiant and resplendent. There's not a single spot or stain in him. He is perfection. He is exquisite. But the woman, on the other hand, is always failing. And she's always seeking after him. You cannot find him. She always is going wayward. She is black but comely. She, doesn't, uh, she neglects her soul. A terrible book if you're counseling a couple. Because the woman always comes off terrible and the man is perfect. No, this is about he who is perfect and a church who is spotted and stained with sin and is loved anyhow by her husband, even in all of her many failings. Could you imagine, first of all, men living up to the man in this book? It's impossible, isn't it? You're no king. You have no chariots. You're not uh, this resplendent figure. We would never ma uh, manage to live up to it. It's not a marriage manual. And then we also ask about this, right? Those of you who are not married, maybe you're single, maybe you're divorced, maybe you're widowed, maybe you're a child. Is this then a book to skip over if it's a marriage manual? Or does every word from God have something to say to you? It is. It is a book for you because every Christian believer is wed to Jesus and has this great marriage that is set before them. This is not a book to skip over. You know how many people in the church today say, okay, that's for married people. 
or those in love. And I'll skip over it. Absurd. You are in love. You are wed to King Jesus, even if you are single. So think on that. It's a book for all believers. And as Ephesians 5 teaches, earthly marriages are but a shadow of the heavenly. And so in this book is a great heavenly and royal marriage of the church to Christ. It's a portrait of the infinite love, infinite love, right, that Jesus Christ has for his church. All the attributes of God work together. If God is infinite, then his love is infinite. It's a picture of that here. Of a love that is without bounds. Neither is this a historical, a mere historical account of King Solomon and his bride. For when you think of King Solomon, what does Jesus say over and over again? One greater than Solomon is here. So whenever you see King Solomon here, your mind, your heart, your thoughts goes, ah, but there is one greater than Solomon, my King Jesus. And that's where your thoughts are here. The splendor of Solomon, Jesus said, is nothing compared to the splendor of Christ. The book's genre is allegory. We don't interpret the Bible allegorically unless the genre calls for it, which it is called for here in this song. Just as we interpret parables, not literally, right? Otherwise we would say Christ is a literal door. That's nonsensical. Or that Christians are literal sheep. uh, Or reprobates are literal goats. This book is an allegory. It's of Christ's love for his church. And so we interpret it Not loosely, but we do use the imagery in the rest of the scripture to interpret the imagery here. And that's how we come to sound interpretation. So scripture interprets scripture. Well, that understanding for the Song of Solomon. One thought for some context. In chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, the bride, the church said, I am black but comely. And also look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. She was in distress as the book opens because she had, and this is the imagery here, sort of roasted in the wilderness of sin. Her sin had made her dark, black. She felt even a sense of embarrassment over it. Look not upon me. How many of you had that sort of sense before the Almighty? Look not upon me. You know, Adam and Eve hiding futilely, right, in the garden. Look not upon me. This is what the believer senses when their sin is upon them. Such shame due to what their sin has done. It makes us, right, at times, it's hard to even consider coming into the congregation some Lord's days because of what we have done, right? Look not upon me, much less thinking that we think of the table tomorrow, coming to Christ himself. Look not upon me. I am black. So keep that in view that this has been in our heart let us pick up then our chapter 6th verse. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchants? The question is this. Who is this? Who is this? Now, I have to do some interpretive work here. Who is spoken of in this verse? It's not as clear in the English, but the Hebrew makes it clear this is a woman that's being spoken of, not a man. Um, the word translated this into English is feminine. And that makes sense. She's perfumed with powders. And the question is, who is this woman? The answer is, this is the Lamb's bride. This is the church. And the question of who is this that cometh out of the wilderness 
arose from the daughters of Jerusalem. You can think of them as other members of the visible church. And they seem astonished at this figure that arises out of the wilderness. And they ask, who is this? This woman is unrecognizable to them. Because why? She's absolutely stunning. She's incredibly beautiful and especially radiant. As Revelation 21 says about the church, she having the glory of God. She's reflecting the glory and beauty of God. And the reason the daughters of Jerusalem are stupefied is this remarkable turnaround from chapter 1, where they know the bride, and she lamented, I am black, and her soul was in disarray. She didn't even tend to her own vineyard. In that first chapter, she did not seem radiant and resplendent as a queen, not at all. But now, they look on the same woman, astonished, who is this? that arises or cometh out of the wilderness. This woman arises out of the wilderness. And it's the same woman. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And what a change there has been due to the work of Christ in her. I'll get to that in a bit. But it's interesting, isn't it? Where does she come out of? She comes, she arises as though reborn from the wilderness. Now let's remember this well, children of God. The church does not come out of paradise comes out of the wilderness. It comes out of a place of sin and misery. Right? And that's where you're coming out of as you come to meet your own bridegroom this Lord's Day. We didn't come out of paradise. She comes from a place racked with sin, even her own. She comes from a place dry and barren. As in Psalm 63, My flesh longeth for thee, we say to God, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Is this not a summation of our pilgrimage in this world? A dry and thirsty... I mean, literally, you are here in a dry and thirsty land. It's almost as though Vegas itself is a picture of the wilderness of sin and misery. What a fitting thing it is called then, in some ways, the city of sin, the sin city. But when God saves us, right, he shows us as being saved out of a wilderness. Deuteronomy 32.10, let me read that. For the Lord, this is so heartwarming as you think on the church. For the Lord's portion is his people. What a thing that God would say, that we are his portion. We're used to saying it the other way around, or we should. He is our portion. But when he says, of all that I have created, my own inheritance is you. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him, and look at this, he found him in a desert land. And in the waste, howling wilderness, he led him about, he instructed him, and these are glorious words, he kept him as the apple of his eye. See how the Lord sees us. I told you this is part of the theme of preparation. He sees you as his portion. He sees you as his inheritance. He sees you as the apple of his eye, brethren. He plucks you out of the wilderness, a place of sorrow, no water, only tears. That's the only water in the place of sin, are your own tears. The wilderness is a place that portrays our own sin and misery. And you ought to remember that for yourself, that all of Christ's people come out of the wilderness. The land of the curse, Genesis 3 and on. None of you have come out of royal palaces. Don't forget that. You didn't come from the palace 
You ought to remember that. You didn't come with the righteousness of your own, with a beautiful garment of perfect, unstained righteousness. Filthy rags is what the bride of Christ is initially robed in. We come out of a terrible place, clothed with, as it were, menstrual cloths, corrupted by our own sin and our forefather Adam's. Children, fittingly, where did John the Baptist preach? In the wilderness. Right, right as Christ comes onto the scene, he preaches in the wilderness and he points all men to behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He's pointing them out of the wilderness of their sin to the banks of the River Jordan. Here is cleansing. Here is salvation. Come and be betrothed to him. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. That's where we come from. Our own personal wilderness. So here then we find the bride who had come to Christ. She's made a new creature in him by the Holy Spirit. She is regenerated. She is reborn. And she comes out of the wilderness clothed with Christ's own righteousness as a beautiful garment covering your sin and then given many graces which in this book are often seen as perfume. She is now absolutely radiant and beautiful, seen through the eyes not only of Christ but also through the church. Who is this? What you're seeing is this unseen reality of your own regeneration and conversion. This is who you are if you have faith in the Lord Jesus. This is what Christ has done to the believer's soul, which you cannot yet see with your eyes and often do not feel in the soul. But it's truly there. With the eyes of faith, walking by faith and not by sight, you see what he has done for you and to you, renovating you. Whereas when you were in the wilderness, right, away from the life of God, you were as that Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. You're as that woman that uh, bef- in her life before she fell down at the feet of the Savior and washed his feet with her hair and her tears. Right? You're as a harlot away. You're like Gomer in Hosea. That is what we are. We all once went a whoring in the wilderness, our soul black as night. But now, if you have faith in him, you are pictured as a glorious and resplendent bride for Christ. Because Christ has washed away your sin with his own blood and covered you with the garments of holiness. What does Ephesians 5 say on this point? For his love. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself what? Do you know the words? A glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle. I I was meditating on this with my own congregation. On even this fact of how pure your holiness is. Not just not having spots or holes, but not even wrinkles. My shirt was wrinkled today from traveling. But our garments of righteousness don't even have wrinkles. That's how perfect it is. Or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's how he sees his church, and that's what he makes his church. Who is this then? That is you, the believer, arising with this, and that's how he perceives you. You know, you think about how the angels of heaven perceived you and me before our conversion. Dead as the walking dead, right? Black in the soul, 
right? But now it's almost as they see the work of the Spirit to turn your heart, right? They behold you as alive and radiant, though not yet perfect. They see Christ's garment of holiness, which is perfect on you. But they might marvel in heaven, saying, who is this? Before the Holy Spirit converted you, you were this dead pile of bones. But now you are something so utterly glorious in the sight of God. And all of it is the work of Christ. It's said that she has the aroma of myrrh and frankincense about her. This is the savor of Christ. And when we come to his table, we emit his own aroma. And that is pleasing to his nostrils as we come before him. We're perfumed with the graces he has given us himself. Christ himself is, I think, a myrrh here in Song of Songs 113. He is called a bundle of myrrh. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. Right? It's his own aroma that we emit. We are perfumed by him. It's his graces. We are becoming Christ-like, isn't it? The case that we are told to put on the new man. And the new man is made after Christ. And these are his own graces that are emitting from us. Such that in 2 Corinthians 2.15, you read that we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. What are some of these graces? There are many, but let me give you the top three. Faith, hope, and charity. These three being principal. And they are in you, I trust, if you are a believer. How he loves to see our faith grow, our dependence, our trust in him. He loves to see our hope in him deepen. That when we come to him, right? If you have hope of everlasting life in him, who has given you that grace? That is him. And as you, even through your trials and your tribulation, hope does not disappoint. That's all him putting those graces and how those graces are perfumed to him. And charity, love, the greatest of these three. Right? Love to God, love to neighbor. Right? These things perfume us. And let's ask for them. Now, ladies, you might ask your husband for perfume. Let us all ask our husband for perfume like this. And it's called, this perfume, her powder, is called all the powders of the merchant. You know, at the time, merchants brought in their goods from far-off lands, right? This is the merchant of the day, right? And so this is an exotic perfume she's perfumed with. Christ, then you think of him coming from heaven, Right, the most far-off place to perfume his bride. The most exotic locale of all. As Psalm 18.16 says in the metrical version, the older metrical version, and from above the Lord sent down and took me from below. Right? From heaven, his spirit takes hold of us in the wilderness and he fills us with his own savor, his own heavenly perfume when he converts us. This is the turnaround the Lord has made in your life. This is what he has done for you. He robes you with his own perfection, the garments of righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ that alone saves you, received by faith alone, but he has also made you a new creation. Regenerated your heart. And your heart, when touched by the Lord, begins to beat with grace. Faith, hope, and charity. You exercise repentance. You long for good works. I trust that's you. And these good works bring glory to God. And the aroma of Christ suffuses and surrounds you now. Why do I belabor the point? You need such reminders. I do too. As we come to the table, that 
Our unbelief doesn't see these things. These are things that we have to lay hold of by faith. And these are the things we are to believe when we come to the table. That Christ sees these things in us if we have faith in him. We must also remember we are not what we once were in the wilderness of sin. You know, one day, on our wedding day, we will ascend into heaven in the resurrection, the general resurrection. We will arise as the bride does, like pillars of smoke, up to the heavens to meet our groom in the clouds. You know that, I trust. And you will be astonished by what? Not First, you'll be astonished by that perfect sight of Christ, your bridegroom. Behold King Jesus. But you will also be astonished to see what he has made you. And is making you now, after a lifetime in the wilderness. Behold, beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. And what's the use of this hope in 1 John 3, 2? And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So pray for more as you anticipate Christ and his perfuming, that his savor in you would grow, that he would purify you, knowing you will be, as you thought on your own deficiencies this week, what a thing it is to remember you will be perfectly purified. It's coming. That's the hope of the gospel, isn't it? I will be perfectly pure. This body of death will be removed. And I will be with my beloved in a perfect and pure way. Remember to give thanks to the Lord today before coming tomorrow. That if you are his, that you would see yourself as Christ sees you, and you would say even of yourself, who is this? Will you say with John Newton, I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I want to be, I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do pray, by the grace of God, make me more as I hope to be in another world, as you come to the table to make me morally radiant and resplendent, not in an outward beauty, but that my inner man would be nourished and grow with Christ, that the beauty of the king would be reflected in some way in my own character. Because this ordinance, right, as you long on these things, long for these things, this is the greatest ordinance by which such desires are given to us as Christ sanctifies us through it. This is the ordinance by which to prepare yourself to come and ask for such things tomorrow. Make me what thou hast declared me to be more and more. He is the vine. We are the branches. He nourishes and gives us his grace to make us these things. Oh, to long for such beauty in the soul. To see ourselves as Christ desires us to be. You know, on the wedding day, so many brides, right, they, they, they make themselves out, this is an outward view, this is just a point of illustration. They want the first sight of their husband to see of them when they lift the veil, right, is to, be, to see a beautiful bride. Ought we not that our husband, right, would see us transformed more and more into what he says we will be one day? His bride has made herself ready, is what the text said in Revelation 19. There is a readiness here to meet the husband. But unlike 
earthly husbands, this husband will actually make you what you want to be. So with that thought, let's consider our second head. The next two will be quicker, I trust, the king. In verses 7 and 8, the text shifts from the bride to behold her king and her groom. And really at the end of the day, this is where the attention ought to be. Not on ourselves, but on the groom. We read in the first part of verse 7, Behold his bed, so behold his bed, which is Solomon's. We are to behold or take note of it. Now, of course, Solomon, right, the possessor of the bed, we have seen is just a mere type or shadow of Christ. So really, we are here uh, not looking at David's um, son, Solomon, but David's greater son, Jesus Christ, right? And his name itself means peace. Solomon means the peaceable one. God said Solomon would build the temple of God. You know this children, not his father, David, because David was a man of war, but Solomon was a man of peace. Solomon would be the prince who would build the temple of God. And in that, he points us to the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, who is called, children, you know this, the prince of peace, right? Isaiah 9, verse 6. Not only that, but you heard it before, Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is here. And so we are told in this text to behold then Christ's bed and not Solomon's. And since we are told to behold it, it is a noteworthy bed. Yes, what is this bed? Right? What is this? Well, well, think about it first. Children, what is a bed? What do you go to a bed to do? It's a place to rest on, isn't it? And what do we know of Christ's resting place? It's astonishing if you've never thought on it. His resting place is the church. The church. Uh, this is noteworthy. Psalm 132, 13 to 14. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is astonishing. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. He says, Behold my bed. Behold my bed, which is the church. Here is where I will rest. Here is where I dwell. Not only have I chosen it, I have desired it for my habitation. Brethren, for what purpose did God create heaven? Sometimes children, we think God needed heaven as a place to live. He doesn't need a place to live. He's a spirit. He doesn't need any created place. Right? No, God created it so that he may dwell with his people forever in a blessed place. Behold his bed. And so he says, keep the church, keep heaven before you. You must meditate on that place that Christ is preparing for us in John 14. He said, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may also be. Now, you're not destined for the wilderness, church. You're destined to recline upon Christ forever, aren't you? What a glorious thought that is. How fitting it is that he is preparing you now for that place, making you one, right, who can live a spiritual and heavenly life rather than an earthy and carnal one. Because the Lord of heaven desires to be with you forever and to rest, to make the churches rest place you know at the table then ask that the Lord would make you more fit to be his resting place 
to dwell with you. You know, who can dwell with one who is unapproachable light and sheer holiness, right? And yet he says he will. You remember the burning bush, often used as a illustration of the church. Though it burned, it was not consumed. Only because Jesus Christ has made the church his resting place. And because of that, we can draw near to God. And God can dwell in our midst. What a glorious thing that the, uh, that the king of the church says that the church is his resting place. And this desire then ought to make us long for the table. You know, when you behold the broken body uh, and the blood shed of our Savior at the table, think of how he has earned this place of rest for us. Him broken, right? He said when he came to this earth, he had no place to lay down his own head for rest. And so in that broken bread and in that shed wine, you see that so that he, in those elements, you see him coming from heaven to have no place to lay his own head so that you could for all eternity lay your head on his bosom. And it's not just eternity that is in view. Even here today in the church, he rests and dwells by his Holy Spirit. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16 You do not yet, I've talked to your minister about this, have a building for your congregation. It's fine in many ways. It'll be good one day when you do, God willing, have provision. However, he has not desired that. He has desired you. Uh, Buildings come and go. There are many mausoleums, essentially, uh, to folly in the old country that are now mosques and uh, gambling parlors, essentially, drinking places. Now what he desires is you, you here. This group here, this small group even, he has desired to be here. Kings and presidents know nothing of the address here, but the Lord of heaven desires to be here and is here now to be amongst us. And he will be at his table tomorrow. Why? Because he desires to be there with you. And that draws us to the table when he says that I want to rest with you for eternity. And I come as a token of that to the table to be with you so that you may lay on my bosom spiritually as the Apostle John did and we may rest together. Next, consider the men about the bed. The men, in other words, then who surround the church. Three score valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. Now these who surround the church are called the valiant of Israel, the valiant of the church. Verse 8 gives more of a description of them. They all hold swords, being experts in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. You almost think of them reflecting in some way uh, the power and authority of Jesus Christ, as you read in the Revelation. They have swords. We know that's the word of God. So who are they? Well, it seems apt that these men who surround the church are the ministers of the gospel. Right? The valiant men of Israel, they're called to be, yet so many are cowards today. Their swords are those of Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now they are expert in war, they're not novices, as Paul told Timothy. They're specially trained to rightly divide the Word of Truth, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. These men are employed in His Majesty's service. Now, ministers, you know this, are called soldiers of Christ. 
2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. This is what ministers are. This is what my brother's calling is here, and mine too, is to endure hardness for the sake of the king. These are men of war given to protect Christ's beloved church from heretics, from forces inside and outside the church, to those who would seek to snatch you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. They're called watchmen in the book of Ezekiel. So our text says, armed with the word of God, they are armed because of, and here's the phrase, fear in the night. Ephesians 6, 12 you can get a bit of understanding of the darkness that they condemned against. They uh, do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. They preach and proclaim the word of God. They apply it to you. They use it to, to uh, in the face of wolves who would devour you, whether the, these wolves are inside the church or outside. <coughs> They, they are there to protect you because of fear in the night that you would rest well with your beloved, right? That's the whole point here. That you would be at ease with your bridegroom. That they would lead you, right? Ministers are also elsewhere called, uh, Paul says, they espouse you to Christ. Right? In every way, ministers are, their, their goal, their duty is to bring you to Jesus and keep you safe with him. When you go astray, there they are to bring you back to the chief shepherd and the lover of your soul. And I trust my brother has done that often. They guard and protect the flock so that you may rest in, her, in your beloved, so that you wouldn't know another Christ. They, you would know the real Christ. And you would know the excellencies of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, your Lord. Sometimes ministers will come to your door knocking because you have gone astray and you're not resting in Christ. That's Christ's love and care for you. He ordains these men. They are trained by him, and they are sent for you. Now, these men not only contend against the darkness out there, the wolves and heretics and all those kinds, but also the fears and trepidations you might have in here, in your own heart. The darkness you find within it. And you have likely found as you've prepared for the Lord's Supper. These men, even your own minister, they arrive to ease the troubles of your soul and the darkness in it. They are physicians of the soul. They do it by shining the light of Christ in the Word of God. They exhort you to His safety and rest. They take the Word of God like a scalpel and they point it at the leaven in your heart the cancer that is there, and they say, by God's help, excise it out. They ever lead you to Christ. That is my sacred role today. And if you fear the darkness of your soul, if you fear the darkness that has clouded you so often, the exhortation is go, run to your bridegroom. Run to him. Run to him. Run away from your sin. Run like the prodigal did away from your sin and the filthiness of it all. And run to him and he will run to meet you. And that is how you take away the fearfulness 
that you have of that darkness and you wonder, will Jesus receive me? These ministers come to you and say, yes, he will. If you turn in repentance and faith, banish the darkness in your heart. That sin, the devil is so good at this kind of game, right? He first, he allures you to sin. Say, come, take. And then when you realize what you have done, he says, get away from Jesus. He will have nothing to do with you, you filthy, filthy sinner. That is the deception of sin. On the one hand, come, have me. On the other hand, as soon as you do, say, you are so filthy, Jesus will never have anything to do with you. Both are lies. And so it is my job and your ministers too to proclaim that those are lies. And you are to come. You are to come to him. Hand over the dark portions of your soul to your bridegroom. Repent of your sin, return unto thy rest. And you know his promise, the Lord will deal bountifully with you. Oh, what a word that is. Bountifully. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Remove, this is my job, remove your fears and apprehensions of the Holy One if you come to him in faith in Jesus. What troubles your heart? Let me just ask it this way. What troubles your heart that Christ cannot cure? The only answer is nothing. Everything else diminishes the glory of Christ. There is absolutely no darkness in your heart that he cannot conquer. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is God Almighty for us. Take it all to him by faith and bring those apprehensions to the table, the darkness, the leaven, the uncleanness. You are called to bring it to the table in faith that he will deal with it. You don't deal with it yourself and come to the table because then you would never come. You take it to him at the table and he deals with it. Well, in verses 9 and 10, I best be moving. We read of his chariot. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it by pur- of purple, the midst thereof. And what wonderful words. Being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Commentators are a bit divided on the chariot. I don't know that it's so important we nail it down. But here's what's important. He made it himself. It is Christ's own work that made it. It's shown to be a costly conveyance. The wood of Lebanon, silver, gold, and purple. But all of it is bound together in love. All of this craftsmanship, all of this costliness is bound together with love. Paved with love. It's a conveyance of love, this chariot. Whatever it is. It's to take the bride with the bridegroom away in love which is what Christ is doing for you, isn't it? He's taking you away in love. Why is he taking you to heaven? You know, so many of us have such a low view of the gospel. We say, okay, it saves us from hell. But have you ever thought it's a chariot conveying us in love to heaven, a world of love, to be with him forever? You must 
think of it in that way. Now, what some people think, like James Durham is, is that, well, first of all, so this chariot has a destination, it's heaven. Uh, you might remember Elijah and the chariots of fire. Um, they, uh, he ascended into heaven right through. So this instrument, James Durham saw this chariot as the covenant of redemption by which Christ himself would procure our salvation. Um, he considered the materials, but especially the purple covering had special significance. He saw that as a representation of the blood of Christ that covers our sins. You remember Hebrews 13.20 calls it the blood of the everlasting covenant. In any case, the covenant is the instrument by which Christ will take us to heaven. He all by himself, right, executes it. He all by himself uh, procures it for us and fulfills it. And so when you come to the sacrament and you see the wine poured into the chalice, you hear this is the New Testament or the New Covenant in my, what, blood. You must think on his love as what undergirds the covenant of grace. And here it is, right? His heart beating and the blood pumping out of his side on the cross. And you think of that love that has been shed, expressed through his blood, it undergirds the covenant of grace. At the sacrament, you find that the road to heaven is covered with his blood and paved with his blood to meet you, uh, to take you to heaven. You know, the Lord has done great things for us in his love, hasn't he? To take us to himself. And how can we doubt it? Every single portion and bit is what? to cover your unfaithfulness, to wash you, to cleanse you, to redeem you, to love you, not because you are perfect, but because you are imperfect and sinful. And that's what draws us tomorrow to the table, is he did all this for one who is sinful and polluted to be washed and never be lost. Great meditations come out of our text, but we don't have all day, it's sad to say. Maybe if we were more spiritual, we would but in our final heading, we'll see his desire and how he is crowned in the crown. In verse 11, we read, Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon, think of King Jesus, with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. You are called to behold King Jesus, to take him all in, to know him in his fullness, and to take it all in, to drink him in, you know, we see him, children, this is why we don't draw pictures of our Lord. It's forbidden. But we take him in, not by sight, but by faith. Think of what Peter says, who had seen him with his own eyeballs, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now we see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Do that today through the word of God. See him who is invisible, as Moses saw. See him through the word of God. See him as the king of glory, radiant and resplendent. See him in chapter 5 as he that is altogether lovely. See him as the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth bodily. See him who is the chiefest of 10,000, who came from heaven in love for us, who loved us and gave himself for us. Behold King Jesus. Then go forth and behold him at the table in the elements with faith and love. Now the text says, this will be really some of our final thoughts, to behold King Jesus with the crown 
wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals. Now it says Christ's mother crowned him on the day in which he was engaged. Now who's Christ's mother here? Now some say it's Mary. Is it Mary? No, it's not the most blessed woman that's in view here. She never crowned him in the day of his espousals. Uh, that is, children, in older language means the day of his engagement. The clue as to who this woman is comes from Jesus himself. You remember he once asked, who is my mother? What was the answer? He stretched forth his hand towards his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. His mother, all who do his will, who submit to his word, especially who obey the gospel. And really, is it not to crown him then? Is it not to crown him to do his will? What does a crown signify? It signifies a king. It signifies he's the ruler. It signifies that you, on the day of your engagement to Christ, the day you believed, crowned him over your own heart. That's what that signifies. The day of your espousals is the day the Holy Spirit came into your heart and you began to believe. Right? Our, our catechism speaks of our baptism as our engagement. It's almost like our engagement ring to be the Lord's. And so we behold him crowned as king. This is one of his many crowns that we read of is the crown that he has on your own heart. David had Christ seated on the throne of his own heart. That's why he said, Oh, how I love thy law. Because he loved the king whose law was given to him. How can a man or woman say, How I love thy law? Because they have crowned Jesus king of their heart. He has said in John 14, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. You think of that at the table tomorrow. right? If this is your desire, to have him crowned as king of your heart, he will manifest himself to you. And on the day of espousals to Christ, would you drink in what he says? It was the day of the gladness of his heart. The day in which you were converted is the day of the gladness of his heart. Read Luke 15 today. Right? You think of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to come after the one who when he finds that which is lost, read, says, rejoice with me. For I have found the one who was lost, who was dead and is now alive. Rejoice, heaven rejoice. Let us make merry and be glad. When he found you, his heart was made glad. What a thing that is. Do you not think that he wants you at his table tomorrow? If he found you, converted you, brought you to himself, does he say, I hope you never come to my table again? That's absurd. He is glad to have you there so long as you come in faith and repentance. Rejoice with me. He says. Can you see the joy he has to be with you, his bride? Does he not show you what gladness and joy is at the table? Would you behold King Jesus then, seated on the throne of your heart, so that when you see him, obedience becomes easy? 
it becomes so the desire of your heart because I see the king and I see his law in view of it. So when the invitation comes to approach the table, believer, he says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Go and rest on your beloved. Rest on him. See his desire is for you. See the joy of saying, my beloved is mine and I am his. Go forth and behold him in faith, love, and uh, hope, and love. These will be perfume in the nostril of the king. He will be so attractive to him. And you will be blessed beyond measure at the table. And he will do a great work in you. May you go in faith to the Lord's table. And may God bless the preach word to us. Amen. Let us arise for prayer, if able. O Lord our God, if the word did not proclaim these excellencies, we would scarcely, we would have no warrant, rather, to believe such things. That Christ loves us, that Christ sees us as lovely, only because he himself is altogether lovely and can wash us. So, O God, we pray that the Spirit would testify of the love of Christ in our lives and that that love would be so overwhelming and so filling of our hearts that pushed out of our heart would be sin. Pushed out of our heart would be idolatry, being filled with the fullness of God's love, that we would know the unsurpassed boundaries as the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians of the dimensions of God's love the width, the height, the breadth of it that all of it would crowd out our love for self and our love for sin replaced with the love of the Savior O Lord our God do this and draw us to the table and may those who do not know the love of Christ perhaps this is the day They have heard of sin and the Savior. May you do a work in them, and may they believe on Jesus and cast themselves upon him. May you do this for the glory of God, that Christ would have that innumerable number, that that great praise in heaven that is as the roaring of many waters, that the bride of Christ would be, as promised to him, innumerable, great of every nation, tribe, and tongue, even as there are many here. Uh, of all kinds of uh, all kinds of former sinners and all kinds of ethnicities. May you, O God, bring these things that are promised to pass. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us sing praise.